Many Christians in this world are not Christians. Since the early days of the infant church, people have claimed to follow Jesus Christ who simply do not. They say with confidence, I am a Christian. But they are headed to a day when Jesus says of them, I never knew you. Now on what basis can I say many Christians are not Christians? Is that not their decision to make? Why would we say such a thing? We might base this claim on ethical behavior. Some Christians indeed do not live like Christians. And that's true enough, but isn't that really the case with all of us? And how are we to determine this woman over here meets the standard? She lives the faith sufficiently, but that guy over there, he falls short. The determination that some Christians are not Christians is best based, I think, on not the subjective standard of whether we live up to what Christ intends ethically, but rather on the objective standard of truth. We believe, as a church, that there are fundamental, essential truths which genuine Christians know and trust as the truth. Now, believing those truths will indeed have transformational influence on the behavior of these believers. That is essential. And yet, genuine Christianity hinges not on our performance... It rests ultimately on the truth. What truth? Christians of so many sorts disagree on so many doctrines. So subjectively, we may not be able to test who it is that lives ethically in a consistent way with the call of Christ. But when we get to the objective idea of truth, is it really objective? This denomination differs with this denomination. This group of Christians disagrees with these Christians on this doctrine. I think the answer to this is the objective truth of the gospel. There will indeed be doctrines on which we dispute and things we're not really entirely sure about from Scripture. But there is the objective truth of the Gospel and we need to recognize that truth. A genuine Christian understands and fully trusts the Gospel. What is that? The good news about Jesus Christ and all that He has done to save a people for His name. To save them from sin and final judgment. To change them. To give them new birth and new life. False Christians do not really understand the gospel. Or, once hearing its truth, reject it. And there are many institutions led by Christians in name who spend much time arguing against the truth of the gospel. They reject it. And they seek to identify with this world's rejection of this message of salvation in Christ. They're Christians in name. We come today to the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And our journey through this book has influenced us, I think, more than we probably immediately recognize. 
In our world, many Christians reject the notion that external, objective, religious truth exists, let alone that it matters. But the book of Galatians reminds us over and again that everything hinges on the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we believe matters. It influences who we are and is at the end of of the day a matter of life and death. And so Paul does not blush to conclude the book by exposing one more time the message and the agenda of the false teachers that were influencing the Galatian churches, dispensing with much of the formality that is characteristic of the ending of his other letters. He makes sure that this key point sticks with his readers. Truth matters. The gospel matters. And a key evidence that we have been saved by trusting that gospel is what we glory in as religious people. Paul authenticates all that he has written here in verse 11. Chapter 6 and verse 11 of Galatians. Just a simple point as he brings the letter to a close, but he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Formal letters in the ancient world were typically recorded by an amanuensis, a professional scribe of sorts. It wasn't easy to write, and so there were individuals, this was their job, the ancient photocopier or uh, word processor, but that almost everyone would, would use such an individual. And apparently, at this point, Paul takes the reed, the stylus that's used as the pen, from the amanuensis, and he writes from here to the end of the letter. He writes with large letters. We have no idea why, if it's just for emphasis or if there's some other reason. There's no way for us to determine. But it is a way to authenticate that this book is from him and that he very personally has interest in the Galatians hearing his message. Now in verses 12 and following down through 13, verses 12 and 13, he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now let's remember these false teachers, they're Jewish teachers, they come from Jerusalem, they claim to follow Christ, they say we are Christians. But they are pressuring the Galatians to be circumcised and to follow the religious rules of the Mosaic law. Why? Paul exposes a motive here. Because submitting to the requirements of the law was necessary for these Gentile Christians to qualify as God's people. That's been their message. You will not be a child of Abraham. You will not be a child of faith. You will not be one of the people of God unless you submit to the guidelines of the Mosaic Law. This is their teaching. What motivates them here is that they want to make a good showing in the flesh. You see that in verse 12. I think the meaning of that must be connected back to chapter 5. And verse 16 and following. Rather than walking in the Spirit... They are seeking to place emphasis upon the flesh. 
And they want to make a good showing there. Literally, they wanted to cut the flesh of the Galatian believers through circumcision. But Paul seems to say here that these legalists also operate from fleshly motives. What they really want to do, Paul says, is not labor for your salvation. What they really want to do, they're they're motivated most by the desire to make a good impression and press their faulty agenda. So what is that agenda? To force you to be circumcised. They were not able to force them to do so. They were trying to appeal to them to get them to do this. But Paul labors to convince the Galatians in the other direction. If you begin to pursue God by the things that you do, by the lists that you keep, by the regulations of religious ceremony, if that's what you do, you will not walk in the Spirit and you will evidence that you do not know Christ. We must walk in the Spirit, not be circumcised. Again, Paul says, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There's another motive. They want to look good. And they want to look good to people who want to do them harm should they not cooperate. So back in Jerusalem, the home area of these teachers, there was intense pressure for Jews not to fellowship with Gentiles. The idea was that we should have nothing to do with these people who do not belong to God. Well, the gospel destroyed that agenda by uniting Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles as Gentiles to the body of Christ. So if these Jews who are taking this false gospel to the Galatians, if these Jews who claim to follow Jesus were seen having fellowship with Gentiles as Gentiles, there would be those who made life very miserable for them. And so Paul exposes this false motive. They just want to be safe. They don't want to be persecuted. Their simple solution is get the Gentile Christians to be circumcised and that would get the Jewish authorities off our case. I don't think Paul means to say this was the legalist's only motivation. They wanted to follow Jesus in such a way as to avoid persecution. Are we going to point a finger? Isn't that what we do too? I want to follow Jesus with no suffering. With no ridicule. With nobody opposing. With no difficulty. I want to be a Jesus follower that lives in peace. That never works. It never works. That is always a sign of weak faith if not of false faith. Now there's a natural aversion that we all have to being persecuted, to being ridiculed, to being ostracized in our world, or in some places in this world, literally being physically imprisoned and tortured. We don't welcome that. Our flesh doesn't like that. But we have got to recognize the Lord that we're following. And when we think that we can follow Jesus and be at peace and security and there's no risk, we don't really know what we're doing. His life ended on a cross. 
and we have been called to a way of suffering. To avoid suffering for Christ is to avoid identifying with Christ, and that never is a good plan. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Well, let's get down to the heart of it here. In reference to these false teachers, they don't themselves keep the law. They want you to submit to the regulations, the religious rules of the Mosaic Law, but they do not themselves keep it. Indeed, no one can because of our sinful hearts. And this is one thing that Christ has come to rescue us from this failure. Paul has argued at length that the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled. It has been replaced by the Gospel. We are now out of these rules according to this plan at this moment in salvation history. And to revert to that is, is not a possibility anyway. These false teachers do not glory in the gospel. They glory in how many people they can get to follow their religious rules. That's what motivates them. False Christianity always boasts in how many people it can get to keep the religious rules. Its boast is not in the gospel, that is, it's not glorying and exalting in the gospel, but in getting people to follow the laws that have no part in God's saving plan, whatever those laws are. Now, the Mosaic Law once had such a role in a limited and temporary way, but that day was over. Knowing God is now, knowing God now, in this day, is linked to the death of Jesus in our place and the washing and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so these individuals, on every level, in their focus upon the law, in the motivations by which they are being driven to press this agenda with the Galatians, they're all off. They're wrong. They're not holding to the objective truth of the gospel and what God has done in salvation history. In contrast now, Paul expresses his boast, his glorying in the gospel. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. They boast in the flesh. They boast in rule keeping. They boast in how many converts they can get. They boast in ways that will help them not be persecuted. In contrast, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I boast. Now, let's understand that word rightly. It's what you find important. What is a really big deal in your life? That which you exult in and glory in. That's your boast. That's how he uses the word here. He boasts in the cross. How is that? Not obviously in the wooden structure of the cross. Not the literal cross. But it speaks of, in one word, of the gospel. Of Jesus' death as a substitutionary atonement for sin. Taking the place of the sinner and giving redemption because he has died as the Lamb of God. It is the resurrection of Christ. Now here's the glory in the truth. In the truth of His death and His resurrection. His victory over death that defeats sin 
and provides for eternal life. So this boast, this glorying in the death of Jesus is life defining for Paul. Is it life defining for you, for me? It should be life defining. Not something we just know about factually. Not truth in that sense. But a truth that transforms. A truth that is the filter through which we see everything else in life. I boast in the cross, he says, verse 14, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When we really understand the gospel, when we truly trust it, we are born again. We become new creatures in Christ. Such that our old identity in this world is dealt a death blow. The old realm of sin and death in Adam. The old order of this present evil age. Crucified. Not who I am any longer. My boast is now in the cross of Christ. And that is my new identity what a strange a strangely wonderful object of boasting the cross a scene of torture a scene of death a scene of horror but in that we glory it becomes our new identity A new understanding. It is the filter by which we see everything. When you boast in the cross, you no longer find pleasure in glutting sinful passions. That's boasting in the cross. Now, the temptation may remain. The temptation may prove strong. But you no longer sin with abandon. You know the way of the desires of fleshly pleasures. But you resist, you repent, you fight, you despise. You realize the emptiness in pursuing the fleshly passions of this evil age. We get the interest, we understand the desire But there's a whole new way of looking at it when we glory in the cross. I died to this world and its fleshly passions. When you boast in the cross, you will never see money the same way again. You'll never see it the same way. You can't. As a God, as an idol, as a controlling lust, money is crucified. Now money becomes a tool by which to serve and enjoy God for His glory. You no longer glory in money, you glory in the gospel. And money just comes along for the ride. When you glory in the cross, you no longer worship friends and family. You love them in new ways. You love them in increasingly good ways. But you do not idolize them or worship the ground that they walk on. Your glory is in the cross. It's in the gospel. No person can stand in that place. When you glory in the gospel, you crucify selfish ambition and the pride which puts self first and seeks glory in your own fame. 
And so we live this weird, strange life around people whose God is themselves, and they cannot understand when our God is not self, but Christ. So you come to church on Sunday and you sing of God's glory. Do we realize how odd that is? How transformed that is? By God's grace, if our motives are right, we come together and we sing to the glory of another. We sing to the glory of God, not to ourselves and not to simply glut our own pleasures in who we are. We sing and glory in God's word. And all weak self is subjected to the glory of Christ, subjected to this central message of Christ crucified and risen. When you glory in the gospel, disdain for people of other nations and ethnicities and gender and age and economic status, it all ceases to divide. What becomes all important now overarching all of these distinctions that our world finds so important, what becomes all important now is our identity as members of the body of Christ. And so the rich and the, and the old, the young, the rich and the old, well, and, uh, the, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, people of all tribes and tongues and nations come together in Christ And across these divides, I am closer to my brother and sister in Christ than I am to my neighbor who lives so much like I do day in and day out on some level. But there's this new identity. We are members of this body. It's a strange thing to glory in a man dying a torturous death. But those of us who know Christ as Savior know that it is in that message that life is made new. Only those who grasp the truth of the gospel can see why one would do so. Why we would glory in this cross. That's where I glory. Where do you glory? What is really at the heart and the center of who you are? Is Jesus crucified and risen a life transforming truth that you boast in and glory in? and see all of life from that filter. Verse 15, he continues, and through explanation says, now let's getting back to the point, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's a little bit hard to filter that immediately, but you see the four there in verse 15. It rephrases verse 14. So this is just another way of saying that Paul boasts in the gospel. I boast in the gospel because circumcision counts for nothing. Circumcision had value in its time and place, but now that Christ has come to redeem us from the curse of the law, circumcision has no more time or place. It's not useful. Now you notice he throws in here that phrase, nor uncircumcision nor uncircumcision, that's not helping us either. We don't boast in the fact that we're not circumcised. We don't boast in the fact that we're not following the Mosaic law as such. That's not where our boast is. Our boast is, our life is, our identity is that we have now become a new creation. And notice, it's not a new circumcision. 
be a great point to put that in if that's what he believed, but I don't think that's his point. We're a new creation. We are now made new in Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Christ's death and resurrection rescues us from this present evil world, and it inaugurates a new state of affairs, joining us to the body of Christ. We're new people in a new age. The power of the old age has been broken and we become members of God's plan to redeem our souls, to resurrect our bodies, to create a new universe in which righteousness reigns. We enter into that redemptive story. It's our new identity. So it's not circumcision. It's not uncircumcision. We are new creatures in Christ. Verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So a word now of blessing as he winds his way to close here. Now, what's the rule? Those who walk by this rule is probably a reference to the new creation. Those who are new creatures in Christ. And uh, it's parallel perhaps to keeping in step with the Spirit. In other words, it's a life rooted in the gospel. We see ourselves as those who have been redeemed. We see ourselves as those who will be resurrected and will reign with Christ in a renewed universe for the glory of His name. The rule by which I live is a life ordered by what Christ has done and who Christ is. Now hear that. It's essential. The rule by which I live, the way that I live, the direction of my life, is ordered by what Christ has done and who Christ is. It's not one oriented to who I am and what I want. Those who live by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. While many take this as a reference to the church and would read it something like, mercy and peace be upon them, even the Israel of God, I believe that's overthinking the phrase. The double use of upon that you notice here distinguishes two groups of people, and that would be the normal way of reading it. Upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the double use of upon distinguishes two groups. The two groups Paul has been considering throughout this book. Now, there are Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians who are the remnant in Israel that believe in Messiah. These two are brought together in the church. So while many think a reference here to the distinction between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians is a divisive note that is out of sync with the whole book, I think it actually is a very appropriate ending to the book. Paul simply recognizes that as circumcision counts for nothing, Jewish Christians, and as uncircumcision accounts for nothing, Gentile Christians, so to the Gentiles who honor the gospel and to the Jewish Christians who honor the gospel, peace and mercy. Very parallel to what Paul does in, for instance, Romans 1 and verse 16. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. I think he's just saying the same kind of thing here. We do know Jew and Gentile are united in the body of Christ, and to them he says, peace and mercy. We are the recipients of peace and mercy in Christ. Verse 17, from now on then, let no one cause me trouble. There's a frank statement to end the letter on. 
But notice what he says next. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So what does that mean? I bear the scars of persecution. The false teachers were pressuring the Galatians to receive the mark, the cut of circumcision. Paul says the only authenticating cut of true Christianity is scars suffered for Christ. Paul does not boast in how many converts he can get to follow the religious rituals of the law. Paul boasts in the slow and torturous death of God's Messiah, and so he glories in the shameful wounds of a follower of Christ who had been and would be eventually stoned, beaten, whipped, imprisoned. Someone sees Paul's back and they would recoil. Oh, what happened to you? Though they probably would not articulate that question because seeing his back, they would know this is a bad guy. And Roman soldiers have put him up to a post and have ripped into his back and left marks that are permanent. What happened to him? It was shameful to take a shirt off and reveal scars on the back that show you to be a criminal. Paul says... I bear these marks for Christ. They are the evidences of glory in the gospel. So, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Brothers, full-fledged members of the family of God, the offspring of Abraham, the new creatures in Christ without circumcision. As we go back to chapter 5, the Holy Spirit, in this reference here to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of Christ. And here we see that mediation just in the way He closes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May Christ be with you. And so the book ends on this gracious and encouraging note, although it is a pointed book. Indeed, the tone, the intensity, the doctrinal focus, the polemical nature of the book of Galatians seems to find few supporters in our day. It's a day of doctrinal imprecision. It's a day of pluralistic orientation that scorns the notion of external objective truth to which all must submit or be damned. These are ugly fighting words and we want none of that in the churches. Well, there is a balance, of course, and we acknowledge that balance. We do not know all things. There are doctrines we cannot figure out. There, are, there is legitimate debate from different theological positions. The Israel of God. There's a legitimate debate there among uh, believers, among biblically faithful people. Having said that, truth matters. And when that truth touches on the gospel, it is a matter of life and death. Of life, a worldview, an ethic, a hope that is eternal. But it can be a matter of death, 
of eternal separation from God if we don't get this truth right. Because there are Christians who are not Christians. Paul has been arguing that through this book. And we've got to get it. The significance of the gospel. The life and death quality of this truth. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Oh, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is serious. Chapter 1 verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's a message of salvation from God. Chapter 2, verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You have to have it. It is your life. And I've labored to preserve it. Chapter 2 and verse 16. Here it is at the heart of it all. We know a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. True faith works, but salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this then. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Were you born again by what you did? Or by what God did? And the indwelling of the Spirit now in your life. Chapter 3, verse 11. And now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That is, we're not going to live by faith, by um, following the rituals of the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Or, could we put that in bold? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Not in circumcision, not in religious law-keeping, but by grace, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through what? Through faith. Through trust in what Jesus has done for us. So we come to 6 and verse 14 and find it no confusion at all that he says, for me, I will boast in this alone, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my boast. Is it yours? Many Christians by name do not glory in the cross. They just plain don't. There's a simple way of discerning this. I've asked so many people in life, I've, I've lost track, but I've asked the question that uh, someone else once penned, but if you entered eternity today, why should God allow you into heaven? 
And just in that simple question, if you entered eternity today, if you stood before God today, why should He permit you into heaven? Even if He asked you that question, why should I allow you into my holy presence as a sinner? What would you say? And you know, right at that place, many self-proclaiming Christians begin to boast in their works. They may not be arrogant people. They may not be boasting in that sense of arrogance, but they say, well, I've, I've done this, and I've done this, and this is who I am, and this is what I've done, and this is my family, and this is how I've... How I've, I've really, what it is is a boasting in self. It's a boasting in works. When you think first about what you must do to qualify to be God's child, and you think about how you have contributed to qualifying as God's child, that is a boasting in your works. And the danger that we find in the teaching of Christ is His statement that on that day, Many will say to me, that is the day when we stand in the presence of the Lord. Many, this is Jesus' words, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In your name, we were Christians. We cast out demons. We prophesied in your name, Jesus. And what does he say? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some Christians are not Christians because the truth matters, the gospel matters, and they glory in their own religious goodness. What is necessary is a radically life-altering identification with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And so I would say, if you do not know Christ as Savior, and you stand before Jesus today, in that last moment as you pass this life, be ready to boast in what Jesus has done. Do not stand before the judge of the universe and don't be preparing your heart to stand before the judge of the universe and say, here's what I've done to impress you. Here's who I am. Here's what I've accomplished to qualify as your child. When you stand before Christ, when you stand before the judge of this universe, boast in what He has done for you. Works will indeed be weighed, but trust only in Jesus' saving grace by which He rescues His people from the curse. For those of us who glory in this gospel, who know what we would say if we stood before Christ, that I am not justified by the works of the law. Christ, it's what He did that has delivered me from the curse of the law and given me redemptive hope then we now identify with Christ. We will not bring in the new heavens and the new earth through our efforts. Our kingdom building will never remove the curse and create nirvana here on earth. 
yet creating and building and repairing and cooking and composing and manufacturing and landscaping and farming and serving and church workdays and whatever else it is. It's all transformed by my identification with Jesus and what He has done. I carry out my life as the image bearer of God and participants in the new age of Christ's redemptive plan. We inhabit this new age of the Spirit by faith alone in what Christ has done for us. We boast, we exalt, and we glory in Christ. In His death, in His resurrection, in what He has accomplished for us, giving us His mercy And then, by His grace, His peace. We glory in Christ alone, by faith alone, in what He has done for us. Let's bow for prayer. Teach us, Lord, to walk in such faith. How quickly we turn to boast in ourselves and may not often even think of it that way. But under the searchlight of your law, under the searchlight of your convicting spirit, we quickly turn to qualification and what we have done to please you. But I pray that we would recognize that in our own strength and our own good works indeed are nothing but filthy rags. And in our own strength we will stand before you in a wretched condition if all we have is to point to our own good deeds. I pray that those who are Christian in name, who are trusting in what they have done to please You, to qualify as Your children, that they let that burden go. And I pray that they would embrace what Jesus has done to provide salvation for His people. For those of us who say, I boast in the cross, teach us to do so in every area of our lives. We continue to be influenced by sin and temptation. We continue to cower at the prospect of persecution. But I pray that right here in this place, as your people pray and as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God, I ask that here we would be preparing for persecution, for suffering, for whatever this world will throw at us by your providential permission. And I ask that we would say here and now, my glory is in the cross of Christ. I identify with the crucified Savior before whom one day every knee will bow. And in that day, though we can't see it or know exactly how it will play out, we rejoice to think that because of the mercy of God, we will be able to stand before the Lord and boast in what Christ has done to save His people. In whose name we pray, amen.